0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Tuesday's FBI raid on the Washington, D.C. mansion of Oleg Deripaska, an oligarch close to Putin, And discuss the broader issues of why the United States is the preferred destination for dirty overseas kleptocratic riches that are laundered through prestigious law firms like Baker McKenzie, using shell companies in Delaware, Nevada and South Dakota to end up cleaned as investments in luxury real estate, etc. Joining us is Casey Michelle a journalist who is a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to kleptocracy, offshoring illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund and the Human Rights Foundation, among others. He is the author of the new book, Out Soon, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money-Laundering Scheme in History, and he has an article at The New Republic, American law firms are enabling foreign kleptocrats. We will examine recent legislation like the Enablers Act, which would force American lawyers to comply with basic anti-money laundering regulations in order to deal with the world of dirty offshore money that comprises about 10% of global GDP, and bipartisan efforts by Senators Menendez and Cotton to staunch the flow of ill-gotten gains into the United States. Then, with Defense Secretary Austin in Ukraine on Tuesday, announcing that Russia has no say in Ukraine becoming a member of NATO, we will speak with David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago, whose latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America, about his article at the week, The Madness of Expanding NATO. This is a door the Biden administration ought to keep closed. Then finally, with coal making a comeback due to rising natural gas prices and West Virginia's Senator Manchin demanding Democrats strip out from the reconciliation bill now being negotiated between the White House and moderates and progressive Democrats, the Clean Electricity Performance Program, a policy designed to drive down power sector carbon emissions, we will speak with Rachel Cletus, a policy director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She is also an expert on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Process and has been attending international climate negotiations since 2009 and has an article at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Don't Blow Up Our Future, Senator Manchin. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Casey Michelle, a journalist who's writing on offshore kleptocracy and financial secrecy, has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative, and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of the new book, out soon, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money-Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at the New Republic, American Law Firms Are Enabling Foreign Kleptocrats. Welcome to Background Briefing, Casey, Michelle.
1: Uh, Ian, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the FBI just raided a mansion or a couple of mansions in Washington, D.C. and in The New York area uh, belonging to Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who lent a lot of money to Paul Manafort and seemed to have a lot of influence over the writing of the Republican platform for the 2016 RNC convention in support of Trump. Well, my first question would be, why does uh, Deripaska need a mansion in Washington, D.C.?
1: uh well ian that's a great question and certainly hopefully someday i'll be able to a- ask him uh myself uh i think the short answer is uh that there's a whole number of reasons that he might want one in he- uh, the united states of america that ties into why any of these oligarchic figures any of these kleptocratic figures have been doing the same exact thing that is to say using so much of their ill-gotten gains, their stolen wealth, the wealth created from access to and connections with all these kinds of despotic, autocratic, dictatorial regimes elsewhere. Obviously, Deripaska himself, sanctioned by the United States for his direct links to Putin in Moscow. What we've seen so many of them do over the past few decades is exactly that. Use their money, use Western financial secrecy tools. I'm thinking of things like shale companies. I'm thinking of things like Trusts to anonymize their wealth, and then to put it into significant Western financial assets. So often we see them put it in things like real estate, these beautiful mansions, you know, high-rise penthouses in Manhattan, beachfront condos in Miami, or in Deripaska's case, this uh, significant mansion in Washington, D.C. Obviously, these aren't the only... Assets that they use or that they uh, purchase, they do, uh, you know, they they put their money all over the place from private equity and hedge funds to art and auction houses uh, to, uh, I mean, you name it, any kind of high class asset. Odds are they're going to be able to do it perfectly freely because of the lack of anti money laundering regulations. Uh, You know, as it pertains to real estate, these oligarchic figures, whether it's from Russia or elsewhere, can still purchase American real estate, both residential and commercial perfectly easily, perfectly anonymously across almost all of the country. And I I think that the case study we saw yesterday with the FBI raiding this, again, I mean, I think listeners should go take a look at what this mansion actually looked like. Nobody needs a mansion like this. But if you're a Russian oligarch and you want to get maybe a little bit of your money out of the country because you're not quite sure what's going to happen, you know, there's no better place to do it than the United States of America.
0: But is Dara Pascarney and other corrupt oligarchs and foreign despots and kleptocrats, are they funneling some of that money not just into real estate but into American politics? Because there was some coverage a while back that Terrapaska, I don't know whether he gave money directly to Senator McConnell, but he certainly invested in an aluminum plant in Kentucky, which McConnell was able to talk about and take credit for. And my understanding is that there was pressure coming from McConnell to take the sanctions off Deripaska? Is there any clarity on that?
1: Well, the, the 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 quick answer to your question, Ian, is that absolutely there's no reason to think that the, the money and the finances stop uh, with real estate or with high-end luxury goods or in private equity and hedge funds. I mean, again, we're talking about the ease of financial access, the anonymity therein, and then all of these other kinds of, as we describe them, enabling industries. That is to say, here in the U.S., the Americans that are involved in setting up the shell companies, overseeing the financial flows, making sure that this money is safe and protected for these oligarchic figures. I mean, there's no reason to think that some of this financing doesn't end up in the pockets of American politicians, American political parties. I mean, think back just a few years ago to uh, President Trump, former President Trump's very first impeachment. And this is actually one of the case studies that I detail in my, my forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy. You know, we had all of these very curious, very oblique, very non-transparent uh, questions about financing and connections out of the post-Soviet region, especially places like Ukraine and Russia. And what we saw emerge was a number of oligarchic figures, not, not Deripaska himself, but the, those similar types that were reaching out to, that were funneling money to specific American figures around the White House in order to gain access to the White House. Now, obviously, President Trump obliterated America's anti corruption policies on a whole number of fronts. But one of those specific areas that he did was open up the White House, open himself up personally to all of these deep pocketed foreign individuals that had previously been coming to the US for all of their money laundering needs. Now, all of a sudden, they have direct entree into. The White House itself. And I, I was going to say, Ian, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the investments in Kentucky. This was a, a steel mill that Deripaska and his team invested in. And what, what we're only just now beginning to realize, only just now beginning to see is that these oligarchs are not just investing in these mega mansions, in these beautiful condos, these beautiful beachfront properties. Now they have begun targeting specific areas in the Midwest, specific areas in the Rust Belt, these kinds of overlooked, kind of blue collar American towns and areas that don't have a lot of other investments coming in, don't have a lot of other money coming in. And all of a sudden the oligarchs or their, you know, consigliaries or henchmen, whatever term you'd like to use, show up with their deep pockets and they promise some kind of revitalization. They promise some kind of jobs creation and uh, you know I don't blame local legislators for saying uh, you know there's nobody else that's bringing money into this part of the woods or into this area itself. Uh, you know what have we got to lose? Uh, you know as we're now knowing they have so much to lose because those oligarchs are not interested in jobs creation, they're not interested in actually revitalizing the local economy. They just want to park their money away from authorities back home or in assets they don't think anybody's going to be looking at. And w- what we've seen in Kentucky and elsewhere is that these kind of economic crown jewels are just kind of left to, just they just kind of sag into oblivion. They have this slow march of implosion. Jobs are actually lost because of this. Uh, We're only just scratching the surface of how deep this rot really goes.
0: And, of course, the Trump administration was the most pro-kleptocrat administration in history. It's just an extraordinary anomaly how Trump went out of his way to help kleptocrats and, obviously, being one himself, He uh, first, very early in the administration, tried to get rid of FARA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, Mm -hmm. and then he vetoed an NDAA bill Mm -hmm. that had banned anonymous shell companies, and that was overridden by a bipartisan vote, which is encouraging.
1: Yeah, you're you're exactly right, Ian. And I, I think the thing that certainly I argue in my book and that others have written about elsewhere is that Trump was the first kind of global figure... Uh, certainly here in the West, to emerge from one of these, as I describe them, pro-kleptocracy industries. So again, when we're talking about kleptocracy, we're not talking about one regime in one place that's far away. We're talking about the international and transnational financial flows of illicit wealth looking to be laundered, looking to be hidden, looking to then be used without tracking it back to its initial source. So when we're talking about kleptocracy, we're talking about cross-borders, Across jurisdictions, so much of that wealth ending up here in the United States because of a specific number of industries that have allowed uh, for that uh, that, that transformation to take place. Specifically, in this case, the American luxury real estate industry. Again, think of the mansions, think of the condos, think of the beachfront properties. We have God knows how many case studies we already know about of these kleptocrats elsewhere, parking their money, doing it perfectly anonymously with shell companies, and then going uh, using that money to purchase significant luxury real estate assets. Because again, the lack of any kind of regulatory oversight whatsoever. And lo and behold, who uh, is you know, the, the face of that industry over the last 30 years, it's Donald Trump, who has capitalized the most on that industry to launch themselves to a political career, it's Donald Trump. So I don't think it's any surprise whatsoever that the Trump administration and Trump himself was such a wrecking ball as it pertained to American anti-corruption counter kleptocracy policy. I know you just mentioned a, a few of those moments uh, just, just, just a moment ago there, Ian. And I think really the, the shell company legislation was the one that was really striking because, you know, Trump, For all of his other faults, and God knows there were plenty of them, could have been the president to sign into law the greatest piece of money laundering or anti-money laundering legislation the U.S. has seen in decades. He could have signed this anti-shell company bill into law, but instead he vetoed it and Congress overrode his veto. Now, he doesn't even get to claim that.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist who's writing on offshoring kleptocracy and financial secrecy, has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazines, among others. He is a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of the new book, Out Soon, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money-Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at the New Republic, American Law Firms Are Enabling Foreign Kleptocrats. And uh, the American law firms, of course, they call these people, these enablers, uh, white boys. And Baker McKenzie is uh, is one of the the key ones that you mention in your book, which profiles two really interesting horrible kleptocrats, but they're very different. Teodoro Obiang, the son and the and the dictator, as well of the oil rich Equatorial Guinea, and Igor Kolomosky, the crooked Ukrainian uh, oligarch, who, by the way, is the sponsor of the current president. Of Ukraine. Zelensky. So they're different in one of them. The Obiang just spends money on luxury real estates out here on the West Coast. Originally, he was laundering money through the Riggs Bank in the 1990s in Washington, D.C. $700 million worth. But then they got into trouble with the Patriot Act and the family, Albert and family, they had to sell the Riggs Bank and They actually invested their proceeds into Politico. Yes. (laughs) Uh, uh, So then he moves to the West Coast and starts to buy a property in Malibu and uh, luxury cars, airplanes, yachts, and all this Michael Jackson memorabilia, etc. So that's one character. And then the other one, which I find more interesting in a way, is this Ukrainian oligarch, Kolomoisky, who had the biggest bank in Ukraine, private bank, a private bank, which he co-owned, he laundered, he stole, 5.5 billion dollars from depositors, and then parks it in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah, no, that one was was uh, was fascinating to work on. That was that was a story I've been following for the last last few years, which frankly still hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as certainly I think it, it deserves. I know you just you just mentioned the two primary case studies of the book right this is kind of the narrative engine uh, of the book and the reason i chose them one for for obiang again he's got all the, the flash the, the kind of uh, you know jet set celebrity mogul lifestyle which is very much what he what he wanted to he's the son of the longest standing dictator in the world who uh through all of these laundering services in the u.s again i don't want to spoil too much of the book but i will say that michael jackson plays an outsized role in the book and in Obiang's money laundering journey itself. But then you also have this Ukrainian figure of Kolomoisky, who, as you mentioned, was running one of Ukraine's biggest banks. Uh, he was you know, posing as this kind of steel banking magnate. You know, obviously, Ukraine has had a rocky decade. I'm talking about the 2014 um, uh, revolution, this pro-democracy, pro-Western revolution. In Ukraine, new authorities come in, they start digging into the books of one of the country's leading banks, and they discover that, lo and behold, it's effectively become a Ponzi scheme. It's effectively become a pyramid scheme with Kolomoisky right at the top. And again, he can't keep the money in the country. So where does he go? He comes like so many others do to the United States of America. But again, he's not going to New York or Florida or California. He's going to places like Cleveland, Ohio. He's going to small towns, steel towns, factory towns in Michigan, in Kentucky, in West Virginia, in Illinois, all across you know, this kind of broader middle America that we so rarely associate with any kind of you know, international money laundering networks. And again, I don't want to spoil too much about what happens in the book, but they came to town. Uh, there was a number of Americans who were helping him. And as we now know, it spelled nothing but bad news for all of these areas that were touched by Kolomoisky's money, all of these areas that agreed to take some of this financing without knowing full well where it was coming from.
0: So just explain to us though, how this works, So. You have all this stolen money from Ukrainian deposit that's $5.5 billion, and then you invest in, in those Rust Belt facilities, this huge Motorola plant that's empty. How do you get your money out? I mean, I understand, for example, with mansions like the Darapaska mansion in Washington that was mm-hmm. raided by the FBI. If you yep. buy a mansion for $50 million in dirty money, then you sell it for $100 million in mm. clean money, you end up, you know, ahead. So yeah. how do they end up ahead by investing in, in Rust Belt decaying property?
1: Well, I will say, Ian. You know, it's funny about that story. And again, this is a, a sprawling international, transnational story that touches multiple countries. Obviously, there there are lawsuits now in multiple countries: the U.S., U.K., Israel, um, as well as Ukraine itself, uh, detailing and 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 attempting to to uh, 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 gain some of these assets back. These figures, as we now know, they're not always interested. In investing in jobs, revitalization programs, they're not always interested in investing in profit-generating mechanisms. What they're interested in, as we've seen, now, obviously, some some cases, they do want to buy a $50 million place, wait for it to appreciate, and then flip it. But what we've seen with, for instance, the Kolomoisky Network, what appears to have happened is that they purchased these assets simply to have the assets, simply to have the land that's going to retain some value without going through the necessary steps of trying to revitalize places like downtown cleveland or small towns and places like illinois or michigan or kentucky what they instead seem to have done is they wanted to get the money out of ukraine park it where no one was looking use all of these again financial secrecy vehicles and then beyond that know full well that hey they're not the only kleptocrats that are out there and i think it's great that you mentioned this this former motorola plant in illinois because what ended up happening is as soon as Ukrainian investigators started looking into the books and beginning to untangle how all of these networks operated, what we saw in 2016 was that this Motorola plant, small town in Illinois, you know, was going to be the economic lifeblood of the community. The Kolomoyki network came in, didn't end up doing anything with it. 2016 rolls around. They need to offload this asset and get some kind of money back. So, they sell it to a Chinese Canadian investor who, again, promising kind of this kind of revitalization, is coming in and saying, you know, this is going to be the economic lifeblood once more. Well, lo and behold, what happens? A few years later, Canadian authorities charge him with running an international money laundering scheme itself. So, you can see how these assets are kind of bounced between these multiple networks. They never end up doing anything with these assets. And these assets continue this kind of slow. Uh, decline toward implosion, no jobs ever come back. And it becomes this kind of financial albatross around all of these small towns. And again, this is just one story uh, that we know about because of specific investigations in places like Canada or in places like the U.S. and Ukraine. I have no idea how many other stories are out there like that. But I mean, there's every incentive for these oligarchic figures, these kleptocratic figures to follow suit all across the country.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, Casey, let's end on a (laughs) relatively positive note. Sure. Uh, Since I find myself being the bearer of bad news so often. (laughs) And, you know, frankly, I I don't want to depress my audience. uh, But at the same time, you have to deal with reality, unfortunately. That the two of the prominent senators that are working on a bipartisan basis against this kind of corruption are Bob Menendez of New Jersey and a Democrat and Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Republican. And then they've also just recently, in fact, uh, what was it last week, that Congress introduced the Enablers Act which would mm-hmm. force American lawyers to comply with anti-money laundering regulations. Um, mm-hmm. And that's in the direct response to the Pandora Papers.
1: Pandora Papers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So give us a quick appraisal of the likelihood of something being done.
1: What? Yeah, look, Ian, you know, it's funny you wanted to end on an optimistic note. And, and this may surprise listeners. I am optimistic about where things are are going, not least because of the experience in the U.S. over the last few years and this nationwide realization about how wide open we have left the door for all of this illicit wealth to come into the U.S. I know, Ian, you just mentioned the, the Pandora Papers, which came out just a few weeks ago. Again, the uh, the largest leak ever of storing uh, documents that shine a specific light on places like the U.S. and especially on states like like South Dakota. It's going to add that much more fuel to the fire of reformers, right, that are pushing for these specific kinds of legislation. I mean, I, I'm frankly more optimistic this year than I ever have been, having covered this part of the world for however many years it's been now. You know, I know we mentioned earlier in the conversation, the U.S. passed legislation earlier this year, finally banning the formation of anonymous shell companies. Now, we still have issues with enforcement, about exemptions, but that single step, was the biggest single anti-money laundering uh, reform the US has implemented in at least two decades and potentially ever so between that all of this broader growing awareness of the threats these transnational financial flows have to you know to not just the country itself but obviously globally as well plus the Pandora papers plus the fact that as you just mentioned Ian you know it's it's really such a breath of fresh air. I mean, I, I don't need to tell listeners about all the rank partisanship and political divisions in this country, but for those of us working in and focusing on specifically the money laundering space, and I'm I'm talking specifically about Congress, not the not the Trump administration itself, but but in Congress, you have this remarkable bipartisan space that still exists for those like who those who are on the right, like Tom Cotton, those who are, you know, kind of center-left like Bob Menendez to say nothing of other leftist folks, you know, folks like Bernie Sanders have been very clear on about the specific policies needed. So if there is any space for bipartisanship still in Washington, it's in the anti-money laundering space. I, you know, There's no guarantee that'll last forever, but we're still there right now. And it's obviously a much, much, much needed space for legislators, both in the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party, to come together to begin patching up all of these holes that still exist with the U.S.'s anti-money laundering regime.
0: Well, Casey, Michelle, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Ian, any time.
0: Well, we'll catch you later when your book comes out. And again, I've been speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist whose writings on offshoring. Kleptocracy and Financial Secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazines, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council of the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative, and he has contributed research pertaining to offshoring illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund and the Human Rights Foundation, among others. And he's the author of the new book, Out Soon, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money-Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at the New Republic... American law firms are enabling foreign kleptocrats. We're going to take a B Station break and back looking into Defense Secretary Austin's announcement in Ukraine that Russia has no say in Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging, and Activism in Europe, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and his latest book, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at the week, The Madness of Expanding NATO. This is a door the Biden administration ought to keep closed. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Farris.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, It's great to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And on Tuesday in Kiev, in Ukraine, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that Russia was an obstacle to peace in East Ukraine and that Russia had no right to veto Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO. Specifically, he said no third country has a veto over NATO's membership decisions. Ukraine has a right to decide its own future foreign policy, and we expect that they will be able to do that without any outside interference. So uh, not taking your advice, are they?
2: (laughs) Not exactly, no. Um, I, um, I really don't think this is the, the best time to be talking about NATO expansion, especially at a time of highly increased tensions with with Russia over the past decade or so, and especially over the last five years, since you know all the hullabaloo about interference in the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. I also think that uh, you know American policymakers need to take the long view here and and ask themselves honestly what prior rounds of NATO expansion may have done. To, contributed to, to the deterioration of internal Russian politics, uh, the descent into authoritarianism, and the, the sort of the growth of irredentist um, thought inside of Russia that I think has really destabilized um, parts of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe.
0: Well, it's pretty pervasive, the feeling in Russia of that the West is sort of rubbing salts in the wound of their humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's helped Putin's popularity, hasn't it?
2: I think absolutely, yes. If you remember back to the early 90s and when we were first talking about expanding NATO into Eastern Europe, American and NATO policymakers assured Russia that this was not aimed at them, right? Like, this is not an anti Russian alliance. We created this partnership for peace to try to include Russia, although we never invited them into NATO, right? Um, and that all turned out to be false, right? I mean, uh, NATO is almost an explicitly anti Russian alliance today. Um, there is no, there's not even chatter about inviting the Russians into NATO. I don't think there should be, right, <laughs> given, given the, the politics of Russia right now. But I do think that the gradual expansion of a collective security alliance onto, onto Russia's immediate borders can only be seen as threatening from inside of, of Moscow and sort of reiterates their concerns about the post-Soviet settlement itself, which was kind of sudden and dramatic and imposed on Russia at a a moment of real weakness and left a lot of ethnic Russians on the wrong side of international frontiers in these new countries. And so I think that there's been a kind of a two-decade-long process of not really asking ourselves how this is seen from Moscow. Uh, Not, of course, that that Vladimir Putin should have a a veto over our security concerns, but being sensible about the kind of tensions that this might raise and and being clear-eyed about what, what possible benefits could could result from from inviting Ukraine or, or Georgia into this alliance.
0: Well, it seems to me that the military aspect, which is what NATO is, of the EU, it's perhaps the sort of weakest argument that Western Europe and the democracies have, because what's really at stake here is the, the rule of law and democracy. And it's clear that these countries into which NATO have expanded want all of those things. And that on the other hand, what Putin offers is gangsterism and kleptocracy and the rule of oligarchs and, you know, the example being Belarus. You know, that's the kind of alternative. So it would seem to me that the soft power argument is greater. And do you need the military adjunct to the soft power? In other words, remember the the whole clash in, in Ukraine that led to the ouster of the the former pro-Russian president, Yanukovych. That began with EU expansion. And it's clear that the aspirations of these people are such that they want, you know, like, not, not surprising, people want to live in a democratic society with the rule of law. They don't want to live in a kind of mafia state. So can't we focus on that as opposed to putting weapons closer and closer to Russia?
2: I think absolutely, yes. Um, I think both Georgia and Ukraine are transitional states that have a lot of unsettled internal political problems, even apart from their struggles with Russia. And this is a place where U.S. democracy aid and democracy assistant and, and, and reinforcement of, uh, of the rule of law, as you put it, I think could do a lot more good than, than a military alliance. I mean, you, you would only bring Ukraine and Georgia into a military alliance if you feared further encroachments from Russia itself. Um, That is, I think the the very process of talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO means that we are ceding the Crimean peninsula. We are ceding the provinces of Eastern Ukraine that that are currently occupied by, by Russian forces. And uh, maybe that's how it has to be, but I simply don't see how, how joining a military alliance will solve those problems, I don't see how it could possibly dial down tensions with Russia so that we might come to some sort of negotiated agreement about those unsolved borders and those lands. Um, it just, it just seems super counterproductive to me. And just sort of like a sort of a, a mindless continuation of several decades of American policy that I, I don't think has been as successful as people in, in, uh, in NATO would like to think it is.
0: And again, I'm speaking with David Farris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and his latest book is *The Kids on All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America, and he has an article at The Week, The Madness of Expanding NATO. This is a door the Biden administration ought to keep closed. So expansion of NATO hasn't sort of stopped pro-Putin and regressive uh, authoritarian states like Hungary under Orban, who's very much a mirror of Putin. He's a a kleptocrat. His cronies and his family are getting obscenely rich (laughs) off EU (laughs) subsidies, I might add. And, you know, Tucker Carlson was just there for a whole week broadcasting and He's kind of the new model for the Republican Party's drift towards authoritarianism and electoral capture, which is what the model that Orban has shown the Republicans, uh, how you can take over a state, a democratic state, with the patina of democracy, just as United Russia and uh, the party of Putin's still operates with the patina of democracy, even though they are completely authoritarian. And similarly, in Poland, uh, you've got a clash with... An increasingly right wing government there at war with the EU over the supremacy of its laws over EU laws. So NATO expansion hasn't stopped the rot within these NATO countries, has it not?
2: No, it hasn't. And that's one of the many sort of broken promises of of NATO expansion in the first place. You know, again back in the nineties. Many of the arguments for NATO expansion were not just about a defensive military alliance against Russia. In fact, that that aspect was really downplayed, because at the time, they didn't want to antagonize Russia uh, explicitly. And they said, you know, uh, joining this alliance, it's an alliance of democracies, it'll improve civil military relations and prevent far-right forces from from taking power in these places. And that, that really hasn't been the case. Obviously, not every country in NATO has fallen prey to to right-wing populism, but but several have, and it's not clear what NATO membership did for the pro-democratic forces in those countries. Um, it also was not helpful, I think, that this that the that the leadership of this uh, alliance of so-called democracies, you know, the United States itself is in a state of democratic decline and was operated for four years by um, a presidential administration that was explicitly pro-authoritarian, that coddled Vladimir Putin, that grew closer to some of these emerging dictatorships in in the former Soviet Union. And And I had had Oban visit visit
0: Washington, I might add. I mean, Orban visited Washington and was hosted by Trump.
2: Right. Trump Trump sees Orban as a a fellow traveler, as as he sees all right-wing authoritarians as, as fellow travelers. And so I think that that has given NATO a kind of an identity crisis in the sense that no one can really trust the developments in domestic American politics. Right? I think increasingly from Europe, the view of America is that the problem with the United states is is the voters of of the Republican party and the leadership of the Republican party, and what that group of people might do the next time that they're in power. And I think one underrated danger of what we're doing right now i didn't I didn't write about this, but if you do expand NATO into Georgia and Ukraine and then a, a Trump-like figure comes back into power uh, who, who probably has more sympathy for Vladimir Putin than he does for the aspiring Democrats in Ukraine and Georgia, what happens then? Right? I think that one thing that Democratic policymakers in the United States really need to consider is trying to make policy that can survive the next Republican administration because we really no longer have policy continuity at all between Democratic and Republican administrations on issues of of global democracy. And that's, that's really dangerous. And uh, it really concerns me um, to bring two states with border disputes with Russia on the Russian border into NATO at a time when our own politics are so very unsettled. Um, I just, I just think it's incredibly reckless.
0: Well, in this recent incursion uh, on the border by Russia, the big buildup, which it was quite alarming. At least the NATO thought it was alarming, and so did the Ukrainians, obviously. But what was most alarming to me about that was that, with putting a hundred thousand troops on Ukraine's border, Putin also, he went on to full a nuclear alert, literally the the highest level of of a nuclear hair trigger, and that's just unbelievably irresponsible and obviously he was sending a signal that I can invade and your Article 5, not that Ukraine's a member of NATO, but this would apply to the Balkans. What are you going to do about Article 5? Have a war with us because we've got the nuclear trigger cocked. I mean, I don't know what what his motive there was, but we know where those nuclear weapons are pointed. They're pointed the United States, and the idea that he goes on a hair trigger over this move to intimidate... Ukraine, I think, is the height of irresponsibility. And that leads to the problem that we have with Russia is that under Trump, all of the arms control treaties are broken. So we don't even have any any agreements with them. And that's what we should be working on, surely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a time that calls for renewed diplomatic efforts to resolve some of these problems. Um to to get uh, Russia and the United States back into regular arms control negotiations, um, perhaps to bring uh, the interested stakeholders together um, in some of these territorial disputes and and try to settle them. Uh, Even if that means, you know, possibly moving international frontiers, if it it settles the dispute with Russia and it reduces the likelihood of nuclear war and it it reduces the likelihood of war on the continent, um, I think that that's something we have to think about And uh, it it is it is scary and and irresponsible um, what Russia is doing. I mean, Russia is an aggressor. Vladimir Putin is an authoritarian and he has designs on reestablishing a a Russian foothold in in various territories that were lost in in the aftermath of the the Soviet collapse. Um, And that's just that's a reality that we're going to have to deal with until he's gone. Um, And who, who knows when when that will be. And so if if we want more security assurances, if we want People in Ukraine and Georgia to be living in peace and prosperity, and instead of in fear. I'm not sure that a process of NATO membership is the path to go, because I think that what you'll see—this uh, happened in 2008 when we were talking more seriously about Georgian membership in NATO in the first place—is that Russia will then ratchet up the brinksmanship. Russia will think that this might be its last opportunity to make territorial gains, and that's um, that's really destabilizing. And I, I think it's kind of a powder keg. And I just I really hope that cooler heads prevail here, because the situation is, I think, a bit more dangerous than the general public has been has been led to believe. We are not safe from nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> it's not uh, on the top of anyone's agenda as it was in, like, the 1980s. But it's an accidental or inadvertent nuclear war is, is just as possible as it was 30 or 40 years ago. And, um, and we need to do everything in our power to make sure that that doesn't happen.
0: Well, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, obviously, Putin is using... The gas supplies to Western Europe as leverage, and if the Nord Stream 2 goes through, then he'll have even more leverage, and it looks like it will. And this obviously is jacking up the prices, and he even recently said that oil could reach $100 a barrel, uh, which seems likely. So we have a real problem here with the comeback of fossil fuels. Coal is coming back here in the United States. Utility companies are switching from natural gas because it's too expensive to coal. So everything that's happening is completely in the wrong direction and the biggest threat of all to the environment is coming now from Russia with the melting of the permafrost uh, and the enormous numbers of leakage in the in the badly constructed infrastructure, pipeline infrastructure in Siberia. So we need to be working with the Russians on global warming. That ought to be the number one priority. Not expanding NATO, but working on, you know, let's send people over to weld the cracks in the pipes, for God's sake, to stop the methane leaving.
2: Yeah, I mean, I no, I completely agree. And and this is a place where we have, we actually have a model of, of past cooperation efforts that, that could be deployed in, in some loose sense here to help secure some of those pipelines and and perhaps to to talk together about transitioning away from some of this kind of architecture. And that's the efforts after the Cold War to secure Russian nuclear material from from many of the far-flung sites that the Russian successor government was was unable to safeguard. And that was a a long process. Uh, It involved some decommissioning of nuclear weapons, and the U.S. and and Russia cooperated on on the disposal of those warheads and that nuclear material. And, uh, of course, that all came to a crashing halt when when Vladimir Putin came to power. But it is, of course, proof that that the United States and Russia can cooperate on shared interests when the situation calls for it. And the rising price of natural gas, the the galloping threats to the environment really call for the United States to to, to pursue a bold strategy of of ushering in this this green revolution that we've been talking about as a transitioning to to renewable energy, which, uh, of course, would have some immediate downsides for Russia. But in the long term would reduce the reliance of, of Eastern Europe and Western Europe and, and the United States on these technologies and these fossil fuels and, and give us more breathing room to secure our own energy needs without harming the planet and without having to do this kind of brinksmanship with, with Russia every time Russia wants to put the squeeze on someone um, via its energy supplies, which I think is a really also a really destructive dynamic, as you point out.
0: Well, David Ferris, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here. and uh, it's a great chat. Thanks so much.
0: And again, I've been speaking with David Ferris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at The Week, The Madness of Expanding NATO. This is a door the Biden administration ought to keep closed. We're going to take a restation station break. We're back looking into how coal is making a comeback due to rising natural gas prices and how West Virginia Senator Manchin is blocking efforts designed to drive down power sector carbon emissions.
3: At least it's not the end of
2: the world.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rachel Cletus, who's a policy director with this Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she leads the program's efforts in designing effective and equitable policies to address climate change and advocating for the implementation. She's also an expert on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Process and has been attending international climate negotiations since 2009. And she has an article at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Don't Blow Up Our Future, Senator Manchin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rachel Cletus.
3: Thank you so much, Ian.
0: Well, it's not just that Senator Manchin is blowing up our future. He's basically hanging Biden out to dry, there's, I think, a pretty clear explanation for why Biden is dropping so precipitously in the polls is because the perception that the American voter is getting is that the Democrats can't even get their own house in order, let alone deal with the Republicans. So the price that's being paid now for all of this wrangling that's going on, where Manchin and Sinema were both at the White House on Tuesday, and there was a group of progressive House members as well meeting with Biden along with another group of uh, moderate Democrats in the House. I don't know why they can't put them all in the one room, but that's the way these negotiations have been happening. So I think the damage is already being done before the real damage is done that you're writing about in your article, which is to having stripping out the Clean Electricity Performance Program from the reconciliation bill.
3: Look, the reality is what we're seeing right now is pretty much every painful aspect of our broken politics on display. Um, we have a reconciliation package uh, that got through House committees that is such an enormously beneficial package. It has not just climate priorities it helps address environmental injustices, creates good-paying jobs. There is stuff there for health care, education, child care, elder care. This is a no-brainer, and it is really hard to understand why there cannot be alignment around a set of priorities. This is what the American people need. This is what they want. So what we have here is uh, a few uh, folks uh, like Senator Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema holding up, what should have been a very straightforward bas- passage of a uh, much-needed piece of legislation. But this is our democracy. This is the process that uh, you know is is enshrined in our democracy, and it's appropriate that this is now getting the attention of the president himself. Uh, that is very good to see that he is deeply involved now in the negotiations because these are very very consequential. For the future of our country and of course uh for the future of global climate efforts as we head into COP.
0: Well, Manchin has basically said that his bottom line is the package has to be reduced from three point five trillion down to one point seven five trillion. And he won't go above that. He originally said one point five, but I guess he's added a little bit of a compromise there. One point seven five. He's also apparently indicating to colleagues that if things get too nasty in these negotiations and the Democratic progressives get too infuriated by him, that he can always become an independent, uh, an American independent, I think, is the party that he was to, or the label that he was, he's been talking about. So he's got considerable leverage, surely.
3: He clearly has leverage and he's using it. Uh, I just want to also point out that every single Republican member of Congress is sitting on the sidelines here. We have these very pressing priorities that are priorities for both red and blue states. And uh, we're acting as if there's just one party that has been elected. There are two parties uh, and both of them have a responsibility to show up. Now, of course, uh, you know, we are at a moment now where critical pieces like the clean electricity performance program seem to be in jeopardy. Uh, The overall scale of the bill is uh, being called a question. But the details have still not emerged. And I just want to say it's really important to wait for those details to emerge, to see what survives and to see if what survives is, a, is going to be a significant down payment on our climate priorities. Do we get the kinds of programs that will help set the stage, that will help make sure that we are on a path to clean energy transformation? Um, and that is literally what's being negotiated right now. Uh, I think uh, it is very sobering that the backdrop to all this is a, a year in which, as of October 8th this year, our nation has experienced $18 billion plus extreme weather and climate related disasters. 538 people have lost their lives this year through storms, floods, wildfires, droughts. It's in this backdrop that we're having this kind of business-as-usual politics squabbling, squandering this key moment that we need to actually double down on climate action. It's very hard to understand.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Rachel Cletus, who's the Policy Director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she leads the program's efforts in designing effective and equitable policies to address climate change and advocating for their implementation. She's also an expert on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Process and has been attending international climate negotiations since 2009. And she has an article at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Don't Blow Up Our Future, Senator Manchin. And obviously, Biden is going to be undercut if the worst happens here and these clean energy initiatives are stripped from, the, I think it's about 150000000000 billion that's been earmarked for the Clean Electricity Performance Programme. I don't see how he'll be able to keep his pledge to cut emissions in half by 2030, which is what he's committed to in terms of his contribution to these global efforts that are going to be discussed at the COP26 coming up in Glasgow on November the 1st. So, again, the president is being cut off at the knees here, and the reality is, I guess, that the nation still gets 60% of its power from fossil fuels, and my understanding is that because of the rising cost of natural gas, utility companies are switching back to coal, and so we're going to have even more CO2 pollution, are we not?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, we have not at all made that sharp turn away from fossil fuels that's so urgently needed. Uh, the International Energy Agency was out with a report last week saying that to meet the Paris Agreement 1.5C goal, we have to stop new developments of fossil fuels. Um, just today, there was a production gap report out from the United Nations Again, reiterating that the world is far off track and we're continuing to exploit fossil fuels. Production is on track to be twice as much as it needs to be by 2030 to meet our uh, goals of cutting emissions in half. Not just in the U.S., around the world, fossil fuels are still on the rise. And that is a big, big problem. So what do we need for credibility going into COP. Well, this framework needs to come into clear clear focus. We're seeing the president engage directly now in the negotiations. In the next two weeks, we have to see a clear framework uh, that emerges, that shows that the climate provisions are going to stay strong. We also need the president to speak to the other tools at his disposal, which include public health-based standards uh, from the EPA, other administrative actions, including curtailing new leases of oil and gas uh, development in the U.S. All of the tools need to be used, and uh, the world needs to believe that there's credibility behind the U.S. uh, pledge to cut emissions in half by 2030. It's not going to be enough to just show up with words. We have to have some of the policy details come into clear focus by the time COP starts.
0: Well, it would seem, though, that since these coal-fired plants and also natural gas, even though the prices have gone up and, as I mentioned, uh, more coal is now coming back online. The point is, surely, Rachel, that they're stationary objects. They're easy to identify and, therefore, easy to deal with, whereas the other major lift is, of course, creating a, a new clean electricity grid with electric cars and electric trucks, et cetera, and that's a heavy lift. But, I mean, could you describe coal plants as, as low-hanging fruit?
3: Well, here in the U.S., coal is on the retreat uh, for purely economic reasons. It is more expensive than gas and uh, renewable energy. Uh, there have, comes with a huge public health burden. Uh, so coal has already been on the retreat for a number of years. What we need to do, though, is make sure that we're investing in uh, supports for dislocated fossil fuel workers, coal miners, uh, communities that depended on coal uh, for their livelihoods. And that, too, should be part of this reconciliation bill, making sure that there's a fair transition. The bill includes many pieces. This bill and the infrastructure bill, that the other bill that Congress is considering, include some really important investments in the kind of infrastructure that can enable cleaner transportation and cleaner power. So that's uh, transmission tax credits, electric vehicle tax credits, uh, money spent on electric vehicle uh, charging infrastructure, on the transmission grid, these are very, very important building blocks to help us get to a cleaner energy economy. They they may not on their own help drive down emissions, but they're critical to getting to lower emissions. And that's why I'm saying we do need to see uh, what details of the bill survive. If we get some of these very significant push factors to get us to a cleaner infrastructure, we can really bring on more renewables online because they are so cheap, they're getting cheaper by the day.
0: Well, do we know what's going on? There have been hints that in these negotiations, and as I mentioned, Senators Manchin and Sinema at the White House again uh, on Tuesday, along with a delegation of progressive House members and then another delegation of moderate House members uh, all on the Democratic side. And as you mentioned, the Republicans are not even, they're just sitting back, Watching the sort of Democrats fight amongst themselves, and not engaged in dealing with the greatest challenge to our future and to the future of our children and grandchildren, but there have been some indications that Biden has been trying to offer Mansion some sort of sweeteners in terms of investments in alternatives in West Virginia, and I think it's the poorest state. Maybe Mississippi's poorer, but it's a pretty poor state in the uh, country. Offering, I know broadband is important. That's terribly lacking. So I know that they're giving him as much as they can in that regard. Do you have any understanding about what the sweeteners are, Rachel?
3: I can't claim to have any sense of the behind-the-scenes negotiations. But what's pretty clear is many of the details of this bill are very important for West Virginians. You mentioned one: broadband, healthcare, childcare. These are all really important priorities for the people of West Virginia, as they are for people in other parts of the nation. West Virginia itself has been reeling from multiple extreme flooding events uh, that have taken a devastating toll on people. Clean drinking water, uh, having supports for cleaning up coal ash uh, and other uh, remediation uh, that has takes a huge toll on the health of people and communities These are all very, very important priorities, and they are in the bill. So this is a moment for uh, Senator Joe Manchin to uh, do what people elected him to do, which is show up for the interests of his constituents. Now, he himself has a big stake, a financial stake in the coal industry that is well-documented, but this is a moment really to put the interests of the people above these kinds of narrow political self-interests. And one other thing, you know, we've heard a lot about the need to keep the numbers down overall. And it is a very misplaced focus on the short term. This number that we're hearing, it's over 10 years. This bill, the $3.5 trillion that we're fighting for, is over 10 years. And as I said, just this year, by October, we had $18 billion-plus extreme weather disasters. It is a losing proposition to go cheap in the near term when the consequences of unchecked climate change are so devastating, so costly. So we need to have a long view. We need our politicians to take that long view and really think about what's in the best interests of people and our nation.
0: Well, Rachel Cletus, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Cletus, who is the Policy Director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she leads the program's efforts in designing effective and equitable policies to address climate change and advocating for their implementation. She's also an expert on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Process and has been attending international climate negotiations since 2009. And she has an article at the Union of Concerned Scientists Don't blow up our future, Senator Manchin. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for
3: now.
2: The